This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Canine Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I do not have a guest with me. I just wanted to come on. I want to talk a little bit about the dreaded worst part of the best job in the world. So we all know that uh, when you take this job as being a dog handler, that at some point you're not going to have that dog anymore. And it's uh, not a fun subject, but I think it's worth going over a little bit. And uh, I'll tell you how I kind of decided to do this episode. Last fall, one of my worked uh, two dogs, and my bomb dog very suddenly... Uh, was diagnosed with uh, a cancer in his uh, skull on his, uh, like the skull bone was pushing into his brain. It was a real sudden diagnosis. I found out like in the afternoon and by that night I w- he was gone. So uh, it was a gut punch, but having done this for a long time, you uh, if you do this for any length of time, you're going to go through it more than once. So I've been through losing several of my partners or retired partners Um, That was the first time I lost a dog that was still active duty. But I've lost retired partners, dogs I'd had for a long time. And it's just, there's no way around it. The whole situation sucks. But it is part of what we go through. And uh, what concerned me a little bit was some of the comments that I got from working dog handlers that maybe hadn't done this for as long and were on their first dog. And some of the comments were to the effect of, man, I could never do what you did. And I think part of what it was is I made the difficult decision that after they did a CAT scan on my dog and he was still unconscious and I knew the prognosis was very, very grim, I made what I thought and I still feel is a correct decision just not to bring him back out of the anesthesia. Uh, He would have been around for maybe a couple of weeks under massive medication and not, not healthy and not functioning. And that would have been more for my benefit. And they said, you know, don't you want to be able to say goodbye to him? And uh, don't you wish you could have said goodbye to him? And I, I of course I do. But um, I was out of town. All of it happened. I had to do it, take care of it all on the phone. And my uh, partners at work had to kind of go be with him. So the whole situation was awful. But when I found out exactly the whole diagnosis, um, to me, the decision was real easy. I'm not going to bring him back around just so I can... Uh, see him one more time when I get back into town it would have struck me as kind of selfish and a lot of people you know thought that was the right decision most people did but like I said a few um, younger newer handlers told me man I could have never done that I'm never going to be able to handle this or whatever and that got me thinking a little bit about the mindset that we need to have when it comes to our dogs so you know we're going to lose our dogs at some point what I have learned over all these years of doing this is I really believe that one of the things that makes dogs special is that they're here with us for a shorter period of time and we outlive them. Ideally, you know, we're all going to outlive them. It's a bigger tragedy when the handler dies over the dog. And the fact that they're here in a segment of your life, I think makes us spend more quality time with them. I think if we had a dog that, you know, stuck around for 40 or 50 years, maybe we would uh, take for granted a lot of those days. And, and when the dog does finally leave us, then maybe we think, man, I wish I would have done this or that. But the fact that we have these dogs, you know, probably an average of between eight and 12 years, 
most of us know that and know that especially when the dogs get older that's when uh, they tend to get a little more babied more than once i've seen dogs that uh, were working dogs that the handler didn't bring in the house much or at all and then when they retired they were ended up sleeping on the couch which which i think is great i think uh bringing the dogs into the family they're a pack animal and socializing them i think it's it's great for the dogs so this whole uh, show i just wanted to kind of just talk a little bit about mindset so We'll get to talking about uh, retired dogs and a and, uh, few ideas I have through experience as, as to how to handle the, that day with a retired dog. But first, I just want to briefly kind of talk about if you're working a patrol dog, especially, but really any kind of dog, but specifically the patrol dogs, these dogs go in dangerous situations. That's why we have them. And there should not be any hesitation to send the dog in a dangerous situation. Now, that doesn't mean I'm advocating sending the dog on a suicide mission. You know, if the guy is contained somewhere and he's armed and uh, he's completely contained, you know, where he is, then there's other tools we have to to go get him. And even then, there might be a, a time or two where maybe you'd have to use a dog to to take, if, say, if he's in a house, maybe you need to use a dog to, to start buying some of the real estate if you can't just, uh, you know, tear the front of the house off like some agencies can do. So in a limited well thought out uh circumstances maybe that's when you use a dog but if if the circumstances are that you're out on an area search and the guy's unknown where he's at and you need to search for him a dog is the very best tool to search for him with and it's a very dangerous thing but the dog gives you that reactionary gap keeps the cops safe and if you do it correctly you know the dog will be out front hopefully he'll give you enough advanced uh body posturing that you'll be able to read his alert and know that all right we've got him back here and maybe you can even get the dog back and and then you've got the guy contained and you can use your other tools at your disposal but there's a lot of days where it's just uh, flat out dangerous to be a police dog and i think as a trainer um, when you're training people it's your responsibility to start putting the the handlers into decision making scenarios a lot of times, uh, those decision-making scenarios might involve, is this a dog deal or not, based on the facts. Maybe you don't have enough for the of a crime or something, and the, the handler should correctly say, well, I'm not going to send my dog because we don't have enough to send him. But there should also be some times where the handler says, you know, I'm not going to send my dog because he's contained, and, and I'm going to call the SWAT team. I'm going to do something different. And then there should be some scenarios that maybe the handler thinks about it and, and realizes you know, this is pretty dangerous, but we got to go look for this guy. And I have the tool to do that. And we're going to go downrange and do it. And I'm going to maintain my cover and I'm going to use the dog as that reactionary gap and the searching tool that he is. And I hope everything works out okay. But we should set up some scenarios where if, if possible, we did a scenario one time where we were able to, to take the dog. Uh, I can't even remember exactly how, what the, the facts I laid out for the handler. But we uh, were able to get the dog onto a bite on a bite suit. And then we closed the door and the dog was stuck in a room. And really, the I can't remember exactly how we laid it up. The, the option really was was just to, to you know, hope that the dog's okay. But he's not going to be um, based on the circumstances. But I wanted to make sure that no handler then left their cover and ran right into the room uh, for the sake of the dog. Because although it, the whole situation sucks... The dog now is doing what what we have him for. He's provided the reactionary gap. He confirmed where the person was, and you know there's other options. And, and the dog 
may, maybe and likely won't survive that. But I think that mindset needs to be put into handlers early on. Maybe even something questioned in a interview, just to make sure you get somebody who's not such a dog lover that if that tragic day strikes and the dog is injured, maybe uh, you know out in front of, of the handler, where the handler can either take cover and save him and his team's uh, you know uh, tactical ability, or run out to the middle of say a street and try to injure you know help his injured dog, possibly start getting rounds you know to himself, getting himself hurt. We need to make sure that we have that mindset that, you know, although the dog is out there and he's shot and he looks terrible and it's and he's making horrible noises and everything, I can't help him right now. I got to stay back behind cover, take a different position, take care of business that's downrange, and then tend to the dog when I can. And I think uh, most, you know, I see a lot of videos and I see a lot of things and hear a lot of stories and over the years, uh, when I still had my magazine, and then even now, I get a lot of emails where people want to do a uh, uh, some type of memorial for a police dog that was killed in the line of duty. I'll tell you what I've seen lately that I think is really good is that, um, not good that the dogs are being killed in line of duty, but what is good is that the circumstances when the dogs are killed, in my opinion, are more often um, good legitimate uses of a police dog where it just didn't work out for the dog but the dog saved handlers lives there's been a lot of times where i've had people contact me and want to do a memorial or some type of mention um, in different ways either at our hit seminar or whatever and when i start hearing the details of the of how the dog was killed when you really you know are able to look at all the facts, it's like well, but the dog probably shouldn't have been sent. Yeah, and it, as an example, uh, a department called me one time, and a guy was on a very very slow moving train. Uh, they tried to send the dog to pull the dog off the train, and and you can imagine that it didn't work out. That's not a good deployment. Um, it it I think there's you know definitely a learning learning situation there. But they wanted to memorialize that dog, and um, I said no, it, and I didn't, you know, get into the the facts with it. But that's not the type of, of deployment that should be memorialized. It could should be one that's learned from. That's where going into the decision making scenarios helps, because when faced with those types of of deployments that are no longer dog deals. Uh, if you've done it enough in training, hopefully it'll be an easier time to make that correct decision when when you're out on the real uh, search. But if you're on that search and, the, and that uh, you're, it's a good legitimate search, and the dog is injured, whether he's uh, stabbed or or even if he's being choked and you can't get to him, you know, there's times where there's a, a deployment under a house or under a you know, anything, and the suspect will grab the dog and start choking him, is that, you know, is, is trying to crawl on your belly and your tactical gear to get to your dog and try and fight with the suspect, is that the best thing to do? You know, I, I understand why you would want to do it, but, you know, going back to your tactics, we've, we've used the dog to create this reactionary gap. The dog has created that. You've found the suspect, and now the dog's in trouble, Obviously, if, if there's any way that you can safely help the dog, then of course you will. 
But hopefully you have that mindset that if for some reason you can't safely help the dog, then you're going to have to take care of business first and then try and help the dog when, when everything's done. I, I know there's a few documented times where the dogs have done a good job creating a rac- re- the reactionary gap, taken around, and then the handlers have ran straight to the dog, and then they've taken around. So then nobody nobody uh, is is survives in that situation. And then the dog really truly is wasted, where the dog was a hero for a minute, and then because the handler hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, this is a dangerous thing for my dog, uh, I don't think they reacted the way that they could have with maybe proper training. So, again, a lot. I'm kind of rambling on, but I just want to put the mindset that especially if you're working a patrol dog, we've all been taught since the days of our academy to do crisis rehearsal. We've been taught that, you know, if I'm walking up on a car and the guy turns around and starts firing, here's where I'm going to move, here's what I'm going to do, here's all the different things I'm going to do. And we do crisis rehearsal on calls all the time. Start doing crisis rehearsal when you're looking at your dog, maybe when he's out on a break and you're admiring what a beautiful dog he is and how much you enjoy having him around and you see him out there running around playing. Then do a little crisis rehearsal and think the worst scenario you can possibly think and think of him being injured out in the middle of that field that you're watching him in and you not being able to go help him. Um, not a pleasant idea to really think about, but that's part of crisis rehearsal. You know, none of the, When you're doing a lot of that type of uh training in your mindset a lot of those thoughts aren't pleasant but they're very necessary so start putting that in your mind that if that was to happen and not only are you ready for it um, you have to understand that people on your team also are going to really love your dog and be dog lovers and that if it happens you might actually have to reach over and grab one of your team members if they're trying to run to your dog's aid Um, so it's those types of things that if you can set it up in some type of scenario based training I highly encourage it, but um, it just got me thinking about it a lot when um, you know when I lost my dog and I had more than one person tell me, "Man, I could, I could never do that." It, uh, you know, the, I don't know what I'll do that day when that day comes. And I think it's something we should all be thinking about, uh, just for for the tactical side of it for patrol dogs. But moving on to when you have a retired dog, that's uh, a little bit uh, easier sometimes because you're not under the stress. And then you can just kind of evaluate your dog. Um, and what I what I always say is, if you've had a good relationship with a vet for the life of the dog, and the vet has good data, meaning he's pulled his blood, you know, on a regular basis, he knows what's going on. All these dogs, you know, when they retire, they're going to have some aches and pains, uh, no matter if they're patrol or detection dogs. They're going to be, uh, you know, a little bit more sore than your average dog because they've worked their whole life. But if you have a good relationship with your vet, then they can start really diagnosing. Is the dog simply old and a little bit arthritic, or is there something else going on? So I, I, I say first, you know, have good, good relationship with the vet, have all your records up to date, and maintain those in retirement. And I know that a lot of these uh, agencies dump the retired dogs and the responsibility on handlers, which um, that's a, a topic for another show, but I don't think it's correct, but it, it happens everywhere. But the good thing is there's a lot of... Uh, um, different 501c3s that are out there now to help us with retired dog vet bills if you can't pay them. So some agencies have small allowances for the the regular stuff. And then if there's a, a big event where you need more money, there's a lot of different uh, tools and places out there. I had one guest on the, on the podcast just a while back 
that was, you know, came on specifically to look for more people to help because he's got the money and was trying to uh, find more uh, retired dogs to help. So there, there is some resources there for you if you need major stuff. On that note, I would caution that if, you know, if you've got an older dog um, and there's an expensive surgery coming up, kind of understand that that pot of money is going to lots of your fellow canine handlers and their retired dogs too. And uh, I've seen a few examples where um, very, very much older dogs have gotten extensive medical stuff, knee, knee surgeries and stuff like that, that maybe they could have just been medicated through to avoid any pain, but it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars. That was then taking money out of that pot from where it was coming from for other handlers. So, you know, remember that it's not a bottomless well and, you know, you have to use some fiduciary responsibility when you're taking that money, um, even though it's, it's emotional. You know, we all want the very best for our dogs, especially, you know, when we've had them for a long time. But as you watch your dog start to age, you know, there always comes this time where you have to make that difficult decision. And what I always tell handlers when I've uh, trained them and discussed this with them is that the first thing is that if you're going to take the dog to the vet on that day, the first thing I, I tell them is make sure you remember what the dog has been telling you for the last couple weeks or couple months. And what I mean is when he's at home, he's out of drive, he doesn't have an adrenaline dump, he's not been in a car for quite a while, and all of his aches and pains and whatever else is, is ailing him, is very, very clear to see, and you know that now that days are right, you know, I can't make him suffer anymore, uh, that I'm going to take him in. Every dog, when they when that happens, they get to ride in the car and they get to go to the vet, either because they hate the vet or they're just happy to ride in the car or they're social animals and they like being at the vet. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the dogs I've had actually like our vets because they're very good with the dogs. So the dogs will really perk up then. So... I always tell my handlers that I train to remember what the dog told you at home. Don't get to the vet and then see all of his adrenaline and see that he's not really uh, showing any pain anymore and start thinking, okay, I'm doing the wrong thing. I can tell you over the years, myself included, I don't know anyone who would ever tell, tell you that I should have kept the dog alive longer. It's always the opposite. When you really finally make that difficult decision and you decide that, you know, the dog is now suffering, I got to help him, that uh, when you're all done with it and you're, you get out of the fog from, from losing him, um, it's usually a very easy way to look back and say, yeah, I did the right thing and I probably should have done it, you know, whatever period of time, weeks, months, sooner. I know I did that with one of my dogs and there was, I was dreading the decision and one day I saw him literally stumble into a wall and I sat there and just kind of caught myself and thought, why, why in the world am I making him do this? He was almost delirious and I was making him suffer like that. And it was a selfish thing of my part. I was letting this dog uh, go through that because I didn't want to make the difficult decision. So at that very second when, I, when it clicked on me, I scooped him up. It was on a weekend and I took him straight to my vet without dreading it anymore. And I think that's one more piece of advice that I would say is that when you make that decision, then be ready. You know, maybe you already have talked to the vet and find out what the the process is and can I bring him in or do I need an appointment? 
Um, I personally think it's harder when people make an appointment. I've been around a few handlers where they say, you know, a week from Tuesday is the day. Man, that's a long time to know that that clock is ticking and every day. Um, I guess maybe it works for some people, but I think, again, just know now before you get to that date, you know, start thinking about which is better for you. Personally, I like to um, make the decision and then just uh, be done with it instead of uh, dreading it for days and days and days because you're already going to have it in the back of your mind. And finally, if it's possible, if you uh, have the service in your area, um, I would highly recommend to have the uh, service come to your house and take care of that. Um, I've had I've had a few pets done that way and uh, one of my police dogs and it was much better way to do it. The dog's calm. He's um, doesn't get all that that adrenaline. He's much more at home. The services that do that, uh, they understand what the situation is. They specialize in it, so they come in, keep the dog calm, spend some time with the dog. You're able to be there with them at the at, at, right there in your house where the dog is nice and comfortable. And then they'll take the dog with them, and uh, at some period down the road, in a week or two, you get the, the ashes back if you, if you want them, which I, I think pretty much everybody would want them. So those are just some of the ideas that, that I wanted to kind of go over. Having been through it you know, more than once, um, it, it sucks. It never gets any easier. But I think um, it's something that, you know, we talk a lot about uh, different training and stuff. And maybe that's a subject we haven't talked about enough for, for some handlers. But it needs to be part of your mind that you're not going to have this dog forever. And the day that you don't have him, he's going to be a great memory. And hopefully you, you've think to yourself, you know, I've did everything I could for him. I trained him to the best of my ability. I deployed him, you know, in, in outstanding ways and he did a great job for me. And then when that uh, difficult decision came, I was strong enough to make it with authority when it needs to be made, as opposed to letting it linger on. I could give you some examples of, of dogs that went on for literally months and months and months where it just isn't fair to the dog. And, uh, it's difficult to take one of your friends aside and say, hey, you know, we need to talk about this. But if you see that, that might be something you have to do also. So again, not the most uh, uplifting podcast. I'll have some more podcasts coming back out real soon. Um, get some more from Sheepdog Guardians, some updates, and I've got some great guests coming. But uh, this has been on my mind and just wanted to jump on and have a quick little discussion about it. I also want to remind everybody that uh, HITS will be in Scottsdale this year. We're gonna, in August, we'll be in uh, Scottsdale. So it's really ramping up quite well. We've got a lot of instructors. Are on, a lot of the instructors are up on our webpage at hitsk9.net. A lot of information on there. The vendors um, are just about sold out. So if you're a vendor and you want to come to HITS, uh, contact us sooner rather than later because we will uh, run out. It's the biggest vendor show in the world. Uh, HITS is the largest canine seminar in the world, and uh, you can come to that, come meet uh, more than a thousand handlers from all over the world, outstanding instructors, uh, all the industry leading vendors. This year, our main sponsor is Mike Ritland's Dog Food. So Mike Ritland will be there, and uh, the Team Dog Dog Food will be there with the booth. 
Um, it's dog food I'm very familiar with, a great product, and Mike's a, a wonderful resource. So he'll be there so you can come and go to Mike's classes and meet him. So we have lots of great uh, things going on this year at Hits in Scottsdale. And also on our webpage, if you uh, check it out, you'll see that we have quite a few hands-on uh, training classes around the country. I've got several e-collar classes that I'm teaching around the country. And we're also, uh, Jeff Barrett, one of my business partners and I, will be in Georgia in uh, the beginning of April doing a, a class on uh, a street dog survival type class. So advanced patrol dog class. So we've got a lot of options. And if we're in your area, hopefully you can come to one of our classes. Or if you're uh, interested in hosting a class, just reach out to us. Uh, the easiest way to reach out to me is jeff at hitsk9.net. If you want to do an e-collar class, shoot me an email. I'll send you back all the details. We make it real easy to set up, and then I'll come out to your area and we'll do a three-day e-collar class. So thanks, everybody. Be safe out there.